Coming up this week on Breaking Badness, in another installment of our Voices from InfoSec series, Chad and I talked with DNS pioneer Paul Vixie about chickens, motorcycles, a California tow truck company, and, oh yeah, DNS. Paul also participated in the Voices from InfoSec version of Two Truths and a Lie. Stay tuned to find out how we did. Breaking Badness is next. Welcome to our special episode of Breaking Badness, recorded on June 24th, 2021. With us today, internet pioneer, security expert, rancher, and hero of DNS, Paul Vixie. I'm Tim, any well-known port in a storm, Helming, and with me is co-host Chad. When it's not DNS, it's probably some code I pushed, Anderson. Today, we're hoping to pick Paul's brain on his background, his passion for open source software development, the bucolic life, and vintage motorcycles. There was something else, too. Uh, Oh, yeah, DNS. I think we're going to touch on that. So with that, welcome to the podcast, Paul. We're very excited to have you on today. Hey, thanks for inviting me. This is cool. Excellent. Chad, how are you today? Oh, doing great. Uh, Excited to chat with you, Paul. Excellent. As our regular listeners know, it's a breaking badness tradition to play a little two truths and a lie. And as our particularly keen listeners might remember, when we have our Voices of InfoSec special guests on, we do the game a little differently. So, Paul, we'd like you to share three statements with us here at the top of the show, only two of which are true. And Chad and I will mull these over as we're recording. And at the end, we'll try to guess which statement is the lie. Paul Vixie, are you ready? I am ready. So we want two truths and a lie in some order. So let me just explain. The CPU fan that we now see on virtually everything from laptops to servers to uh, whatever, if you still have a tower, uh, was it had to be invented. And um, it was so innovative at the time that the person who invented it, patented it, made millions by selling that patent. Here's another. Um, the longitudinal profile, in other words, the, the rear view of motorcycle tires, uh, shows that they are round rather than flat the way a car's tires would be. And the reason for this is to give you a smaller turning radius when you are leaning the bike over uh, into a turn. And finally, the original USB protocol was uh, kind of inspired by and similar to the uh, mouse and keyboard standard for the IBM PS2 computer. Um, And as a result, it inherits some features that, of course, are not useful for all of your USB devices, but it does mean that a USB keyboard uh, will just natively have N-key rollover, which is something an Emacs user would be thankful for because you got to hold a lot of shift and control characters, uh, keys down at the same time that you're hitting things. So there you have it. Those are excellent. Those are really, really good. Uh, nothing is standing out to me right away as a, uh, a truth or a lie. But, uh, well, Chad, we're going to mull those over as we proceed with the show, and then we'll revisit them at the end. So uh, thank you, Paul. 
All right. With that taken care of, let's learn more about Paul. So, Paul, uh, I'm not going to dive straight into the uh, the software side just yet. So, I've heard you've got chickens. Is that correct? Uh, I think it's fair to say my family has chickens, um, and they're out there. Um, I am a helper. But uh, yeah, the, it's a strange thing. If you have land, you're going to end up with animals. And that's just sort of what we've fallen into, not just chickens, but horses. Um, yeah, they're all over the place. So we were talking about this and like, uh, do you have a naming schema for the chickens? Do, do the chicken names have a time to live? The, uh, the uh, boy. So the first set of chickens, um, uh, you know, they, they arrived, they were cute. Um, I think we got them by mail. Um, and that was, that was terrific. And every one of them got a name and a destiny and a history and all the rest. Um, eventually you, you rotate through chickens. They don't live all that long. And you get to a certain point where they're uh, identified by their breed, uh, which uh-huh. I largely don't know. So I can't tell, but the, the, the kids all know which chicken is which. Hey, the white one got out of the fence or something like that. All right. Um, well, it sounds it sounds lovely. Um, now, another thing that you mentioned when we were prepping for this episode is that you have not one, not two, not three, not four, but five 1980s vintage BMW bikes. So uh, tell us about that and how that came to be. <laughs> Well, uh, I guess it all started by dropping out of high school, uh, running away to join the computer circus. And uh, eventually I got my first real job um, and could afford a motorcycle that wasn't kind of an old used Honda that I had to fix myself. And I I thought, wow, I I just got my first real paycheck. This is cool. I, I really want a nice motorcycle. Wanted a Harley but could not afford Harleys. Even at that time, they were uh, premium, both in price and in reputation. So uh, BMW was my backup plan. I said, well, let's go see what they've got. And uh, there was just this this bike sitting in the corner of the showroom, San Francisco BMW, and uh, it called to me. It, It was actually ordered originally by the San Francisco Police Department. They chose eventually, I guess, to receive only sort of all but one. And this was just leftover. And um, it it's special. It, it, all BMWs at that time had this sort of built-in frame-mounted fairing. This one didn't because every police department has their own to put on. So this was a so-called naked bike. So I just, I fell in love. I... Uh, I gave them all the money I had, uh, and they, uh, they they gave me the bike, and that was that was terrific. But so this is like an R eighty or something, or maybe it's an R one hundred. R one hundred with with no designator. It's no, it wasn't the CS. It wasn't the T. It wasn't the S. Et it was just the straight out R one hundred with the forty millimeter carbs, and it was terrific. I I, I took that thing everywhere. Um, but, you know, time went by 
So some decades went by, and I finally said, you know, I uh, I love this '83 bike that I bought new in '84, um, but it's getting old, and I think I want a newer motorcycle. I, I, I think uh, you know I, I should find out what else there is in the world, and so. I added an 85 version and the 85 uh, was, is a K100 rather than R. So it's the first liquid cooled bike they did four cylinders, um, which I had not been able to afford back in the day. It was the more expensive option, but everything gets a little cheaper as you get older. And um, so, yeah, I, I, I got one that was two years younger and that also is a terrific bike. Uh, but that then sort of inspired me. Um, I do so much work with the Security Information Exchange in Europe, where we're trying to get passive DNS from everybody who's willing to share it. And um, I, I had to spend a lot of time there. And I thought, you know, I bet I could afford a motorcycle if I could find some place to put it, which I can. And so I, I've got one that I keep in Skanderborg in Denmark. And another one that I keep in Karlsruhe in Germany, and a third which is uh, stored in London. And so, pretty much wherever I go, I don't have to use trains. I don't have to use planes to move around inside Europe. I can just go get on. You know, I don't fly to my destination. I fly to the closest motorcycle, and then I, I ride to the destination. And that has just been terrific. Uh, it's a thrill of a lifetime. One of those three bikes, the German one that's in Karlsruhe is also an R100. The other two are K100s. But to ride an R100 big uh, big twin air-cooled on the A roads of Germany, which have no speed limit, just as advertised, um, is, the, is a thrill that probably very few Americans ever get. And, you know, it's, it is the... That's what this motorcycle was built by BMW to do. And I've done it and uh, done it more than once. I've made a habit of it. And uh, boy, that was on my bucket list. That's, th these are beautiful bikes, by the way. I'm looking at this K100 now. This uh, also called the Flying Brick, I see. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that inline four. Yeah, it's a beautiful brick. Yeah, that sounds like sounds like the dream. Um, I remember seeing one of those bikes on a on a display, a brand new BMW K bike in Berlin in the late 80s and just thinking that looks like the pinnacle of, of technology right there. That looks amazing. Well, they've come yeah. out with a lot of newer, fancier, more complicated bikes since then, but they haven't come, have not come out with a better one, in my opinion. Hmm. My dad and I rode R100 RTs all through Alaska about, God, it's 30 years ago now. And... Uh, Anyway, we're digressing a lot. This week on In the Road from Breaking – on the road from Breaking Badness. No, yeah, hopefully not uh, in the road. Uh, yeah, hopefully not really in the avoided. road. Keep the rubber side down. So let's go back a little bit before you scraped together the uh, the cash to get your, your first bike. You mentioned joining the internet circus. So how did you originally get interested in technology, electronics, computers, et cetera? Um, I think it's what everybody does. Uh, you know, they look for something that will be, uh, that resonates to some uh, inner fact about themselves. And that's a challenge, stretch drive, uh, something maybe a little unique. And um, 
Yeah, so back in the day, it would have been ham radio. And that's, uh, it wasn't so much that ham radio was the attraction, but that was the thing that filled the niche that is now filled by, you know, programming or uh, protocol design or, or what have you to building distributed systems is, is kind of what I do now. Um, but in 1980, I was, uh, you know, kind of in a difficult spot, <clears throat> failing to, uh, uh, definitely failing in high school. And I thought, you know, this is going nowhere. They just told me I'm going to be a junior again next year. Uh, I don't think I can do that. So uh, my day job at that time was working in a gas station, um, honest work. And I had been offered a chance to drive a tow truck for twice as much money per hour. And I thought, well, that would be good. I wouldn't have to stand out here in the rain. Uh, you know, that that's what I want to do. But. You know, I know how to program computers. Um, I wonder if there's a job to be had doing that. Uh, and, um, you know, so I decided I would, I would check into this whole computer programming thing before uh, leaving the gas station to go drive the tow truck. And, uh, of course, the computer programming thing was ready to take off. And so I was valuable, even though kind of a novice at the time. Um so uh, I guess what I want to say is the internet wasn't a thing. So yes, it turned into the internet circus. It has become the thing that has devoured the world. Uh, but first software had to devour the world. And if you were capable of writing it, then they would, uh, you know, they'd ask you a question, uh, give you a chance to prove what you could do. And if you could do it, they would just hire you. And at that time, we didn't have the post 9-11 thing. Uh, you, if you wanted to uh, get a job, you just showed them your social security card and uh, that's all it took. So they didn't ask me how old I was. Uh, I didn't tell them until a year and a half later. By the way, my 18th birthday was yesterday and let them do the math and say, wait, that means you were. Yeah, that's true. In fact, I was worried about um, maybe having the embarrassing problem of a truant officer show up at my workplace. So I remember taking the California high school proficiency exam in order to kind of opt out officially of the public education system. Mm. Um but once you're in, then you kind of go where the industry takes you. And so when when I found out about the Internet uh, a couple of years later, I, I had to have it. I had to be part of that. It was just it was so cool. Even if what you were doing at the time was, you know, running Telnet from, you know, some tip somewhere to get to some online, you know, tops 20 or uh, BSD system uh, on a guest account or whatever. Just that was so compelling. It was even better than ham radio. Uh, so I, I was a, I was an addict. I was a latent addict <laughs> and I found my fix. The first hit was free and I've spent the rest of my life chasing that high. Yeah. And so, you know, starting that early on, obviously, uh, you know, you've become known for your uh, contributions in the world of um, DNS. But what was the, you know, what was the first obsession then, um, you know, in that connected software realm? Because um, you've certainly contributed plenty to uh, free software as well over the years. I have. And I think the idea of free software was also quite compelling. Um, 
just the idea that uh, you do the best you could and then you'd have kind of this peer review of everybody who looked at it and said, hey, that's uh, good or hey, that's terrible. Absolutely. So so at the time it was um, Usenet, uh, which is, I guess, a distributed bulletin board system for those who don't remember it. <laughs> uh, but it was kind of the adjunct to email. If you, you could either send unicast to a person to some set of people or you could do broadcast, just you know, post to some news group somewhere and it would go to computers, many computers, very expensive, many computers all over the world. And uh, this was used to send software. And I, there was a, a news group called NetSources, net.sources, then mod.sources, eventually became comp.sources.unix. I eventually became the moderator of that news group. So pe- other people were sending their software to me. And it was just amazing uh, to see what everybody was doing. It was like a distributed show and tell of maybe not the best and brightest. I, I certainly had some learning ahead of me. But it was uh, the, the, it was the ambitious. It was those who wanted uh, to be in the game, and so I remember posting the uh, first thing I ever posted to um, Usenet that was source coded was a tiny little utility called Display that uh, used curses to just re- repeatedly uh, run a command and uh, update the output. And of course, curses was a way to control the terminal screen, which they were real terminals, not Xterm or whatever we have now. They were yeah. actual honest to God terminals. Uh, but you could, uh, using curses, you could send sort of the minimum escape sequence set that it would take to update the screen you had to be the screen you wanted. And uh, I just, I saw the connections if you, if you wrote it just this way, then you could get any program to look like it was visual. And um, that was sort of the power of BSD, the power of uh, Usenet, um, the, the power of curses. And uh, people loved it. They, they said, wow, this is kind of cool. And it, it was a short program. It was not, you know, I didn't split the atom for this. Uh, but, you know, I, I learned how to document things and how to share them and how to accept bug reports and all the rest. And again, as I said earlier, once you're exposed to that community for the first time, you might, it might be that that takes over your life. And it did me. And it was that that inspired Cron that came a few years later that uh, is now, I guess, pretty much the de facto standard Cron for um, all Unix-based systems. And that's uh, kind of cool also. People have sent me over the years, they've said, uh, they've met me at a conference, for example, and and shown Paul, I've printed out my cron tab. Could you sign it for me? (laughs) Well, you know, yeah, damn straight, I will sign it for you. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Because that's that's, those those are the people I want to be in the same world with. And... uh, and so that's just, it's been huge. Yeah. I feel like, I used to feel like I was born a little bit too late because I felt like a lot of cool stuff had been done before I got old enough to drop out of high school. I've since learned that I was born at exactly the right moment. Yeah. I think that's a very good uh, a viewpoint to have. I sometimes felt the same way uh, early on in my computing career. I kind of came in where there was uh, Usenet, I guess, was waning um but still slightly popular but uh you know it did end up being just the right time i think uh, maybe some of the spiritual successor to um that comp group is you know in github in some ways um and things which have made it very easy for all of us to communicate and share our very bad software 
um, with our friends. Um, but if I think of uh, how many times I've uh, edited a cron tab over my career, especially when I was doing sysadmin work, um, it's just funny how many, how often I've touched that software. So thank you for that. Um, I do have to check the man page still every single time to get the uh, syntax right for the timing. I don't know why it just does not uh, sit in my head, but uh, what can you do? Uh, well, you know, in fairness to me, I'd like everybody to know, I implemented something that was already in existence, right? There was not an open source version of cron, so I wrote one and I wrote it according to, at first, the System 5 uh, spec, because that was much better than the older v, uh, AT&T Bell Labs V7 spec that BSD was based on. And in particular, it would send you email if your cron job generated any output. And that was huge. Yeah. It was assistant at the time I needed that um, <clears throat> but in terms of like what the crown tab looks like what is what that syntax is and which I've extended by the way and it's amazing what people have done with my extensions but um, people have blamed me for it they've said you know this is this is really arcane. This is obscure. This is hard to remember. It's hard to look at. Why did you do this? Well, I did that because that's what POSIX said. <laughs> so, you know, I, I am not the inventor. I was, I just implemented the version everybody's using. And, uh, you know, please don't blame me for the fact that it's crontab-r to remove a crontab instead of crontab-d. You know, I realize how illogical that is, but it's what the POSIX specification said. Yeah. That's funny. And speaking of uh, specifications and and uh, designing protocols and whatnot, we talked a little bit, um, you know, before this about uh, RFCs and kind of how you've contributed a lot um, there as well to, I guess, your own designs that people are implementing. Um, and now we, you know, we Tim and I went and looked, and it looks like RFCs have kind of slowed down in terms of their uh, rate of submission. Um, why? Why do you think that is? That infrastructure discussion um, has kind of come to a halt. I, I was like kicking around in my head. Do you think it's like we've reached this like abstractions world with Kubernetes where uh, people have moved all the way out and they just think like, oh, we've got it on the other end. You know, like that's all that's all um, uh, canon at this point, you know, or, or you know, why is that? It, se yeah, it seems that people aren't thinking about that as much. Um, I think it's it's much harder to participate uh, when when I was working on RFC 1876, uh, which is the LOC, the location resource record for DNS, um, everybody knew everybody. And the IETF would still fit in a large auditorium. Um, and you could sort of write up your best idea, get some feedback from it, and publish. And um, if it was wrong, you'd publish your revision. And that was fairly easy. Now, uh, the RFC has got thousands of participants and you can really only sit at that table if you are working for a wealthy company who can afford to dedicate all of your time or half of your time because you got to read everything. You got to know the whole history. You got to be an expert or you get shot down immediately. Um, finding a co-author is difficult if you don't know anyone. So uh, it's, it's just... 
as it's gotten bigger, because the internet has become the world's digital nervous system and is now kind of in command of the world's commerce, uh, big companies have gotten very interested in influencing their own operating conditions. That's what they do. It's how they got big. That's how you stay big. And um, so the, 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 uh, I guess fortune favors the bold. If you have an idea you're very passionate about and you can afford to travel and you can afford to spend the years it takes to, to be accepted by that audience, then you can still contribute to RFCs. But it's much easier to go fork something on GitHub, make some changes to that, post them as a, you know, a branch and see if you can get your software accepted. Uh, the, protocol, the, the protocol should continue to change. It has not changed fast enough. I think IPv6 is, as Tony Lee of Cisco put it at the time, uh, too little and too soon. We didn't need it when it was being standardized. And what we needed was a much bigger change from IP, IP version 4 than what it represented. But there's so much inertia in the system that to, to get something accepted, uh, you have to get consensus among such a broad set of people that um, we've, we've sort of dumbed down the process. And certainly in the DNS field, I have been a little bit more terrified by RFCs that are drafted or proposed by people who they only come from one world, right? When I started in this whole thing, to get access to a Unix system at all, you had to have you had to be uh, have some useful skill, and for me that was always a combination of what uh, is now called system administration, or maybe DevOps is what they call it now. I have no idea, but um, I had to be a programmer who could also fix things. And I had to be an operator who could also fix drivers and so forth. So if you ever heard the aphorism, beware of programmers carrying screwdrivers, that was me. And um, <laughs> what that meant is that whenever I wanted to make a change and I took over the maintenance of bind in the early days, um, after Berkeley sort of finished their work and the CSRG disbanded, um, I started working on it, but I was working on it from the perspective of uh, being the sysadmin for DEC.com, Digital Equipment Corporation. Mm. Some of you may remember them. They made faxes. That was, uh, there was a time when all the computers on the ARPANET were made by that company. And um, I, uh, I knew what Bind had to do because I was using it to control the operations of a 130,000 employee company. Uh, the other people who were working on the software did not have an operations background. They didn't know what needed to be done. They didn't understand intuitively where the pain points were. And that has gotten worse. Uh, so I'm now seeing RFCs that sail through. Everybody says, oh yeah, looks, looks like a great idea. Let's do it that way now. I'm seeing that, for example, in the quick QUIC group, the transport uh, people mm -hmm. are approving things that we don't even have an oper interoperability test yet. Uh, th their thought is we'll approve it now and then revise it later. And that used to be the way things worked. But the stuff they're approving, you know, it, it's, it's really not well thought out because they don't have operators 
helping to design the protocol. They don't, they have a lot of programmers helping to design the protocol. There's always somebody who's willing to say, well, if we do whatever UDP option fragmentation this way, um, then that'll help because the way we do, I don't know, uh, check some computation offload in whatever their system is, Linux, BSD, Mumble, uh, they'll say, this will be great because it'll be easy for us to implement in our software. And what I want to say is, yeah, but what about the Windows people? They, they've yeah. got offload as well. What's going to be easy for them? Somebody will want to talk about how to do um, uh, zero copy so that as you receive data, it just goes directly into an MBUF instead of landing somewhere and having to be copied later. And again, how you do that depends a lot on the kernel. And you should not be writing protocols that are designed to make it easy for some kernel. Right. Linux is big, but, you know, 50 years from now, the, the, whoever's doing things is going to be using something different. Let's let's make something timeless. Well, that's not what the companies who fund the participants want done. And uh, that's not what the participants have seen done. So, yeah, I'm a little worried about RFC, but it's the opposite of your worry. Right. It has slowed down but for the wrong reason. And the part that has not slowed down is, is proceeding in sometimes the wrong way. But it's just me. I'm, you know, uh, whatever, slightly old man starting to <laughs> say, I, I used to be a punk. We were better. Uh, walked to school in the snow, uphill both ways. Hey, you kids get off of my lawn. So, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to halt this, but I, I, I will say that I'm uncomfortable with some of what I see. Yeah, I wonder if it's a bit of that, uh, you know, I guess DevOps culture, um, you know, that I, that I graduated into, I guess, of, um, you know, move fast and uh, fail early and fail often. Um, and it's like uh, that maybe isn't the best when it comes to infrastructure ideas. Uh, it really isn't. And, yeah, within you know, a small domain, sure. But yeah, Internet wide, proceed with caution. Yeah. Well, and, and Paul, I know that you've contributed, um, you know, a ton to open source software, as we talked about before. Um, and, and one of the things I really wanted to ask you, I was curious, you know, we all have these um, abandoned projects in our folders or things that we wish we could get to uh, or things that just didn't quite work out. Um, you know, I, I was curious, what's your like, uh, what's the project that got away? The, uh, the one you had to abandon or that uh, you really still think you could wish on or that you could work on uh, rather? Um. You know, the ones that died uh, probably died for a good reason. Um, I am pretty happy with what the team came up with in bind version nine. Because, um, you know, I, I was the single most responsible person for bind version eight. And um, when we got around to doing version nine, we hired a team. We actually just said, you know, how many people does it take? Let's get Grant Starpa was involved. And, uh, you know, I told them, please do not use any of my code. Please write the whole thing from scratch. <laughs> <I like> that. <laughs> and, uh, and they did. And, you know, the, they had an opportunity to try different things, uh, some of which had some you know, terrible uh, implications. And, and so there were some performance problems in the early version. I remember telling them, OK, so uh, I just took your software, bind, you know, 9.0.0 dash pre-release, whatever, and uh, tried it on Fruit, which that, that, that company was also a name server operator, as they still are in its systems consortium, tried it on Fruit, and it used 
way more CPU time than the bind eight version had done. Uh, what the heck, you know, I, I, I probably could upgrade this, the hardware, but I don't think we're going to be able to give away software that is that much slower than the previous version. And so they, they took that, the team took that, they said, you know, that's objective feedback. We'll, we'll add some, you know, performance uh, testing as part of our QA process. And, um, they, they revised significantly the way it had to work and they got it working and uh, it worked, worked with threads and everything was fine. But the thing we didn't do that I had wished we could do was um, to federate it uh, kind of in the way that is happening now with all this JSON config logic that's, that's coming in. Uh, what I wanted it to be is that when you wrote a config file, um, the namedconf file, you you would eventually run some program that would read that file and then do something to a constellation of processes to update the actual management information base uh, based on that config file. And that if you didn't like the config file, there would be a command language. That's how we did this with DECnet back in, in the day. Uh, you would run a program and it would give you another prompt. So kind of like G GDB or, or something like that. And you would type the command that would you know, change the configuration of that node or of that network. And it, my ideal for bind nine, uh, which I repeated for bind version 10, which went nowhere, but um, was that uh, all of that was a detail, whether you con- connected to it by a command line or some API, so you're just programming it to do what you wanted or using a config file. You know, those are just details. You're all talking to a backend and it becomes a, a, a sort of a unified field theory behind the scenes. That's what I wanted, hmm. but it turned out to be a lot more difficult and we just didn't have the budget uh, either in time or in money and so that I wish we had done. And I, I specified Bind 10 the same way, uh, like 10 years later or eight years later, whatever. Some, some years later, we, um, we got funding to work on the, the next version. And I said, all right, let's get it right this time. Let's make sure the back end is sort of independent of how you configure it, how you monitor it, all the rest. You know, let's put shims between it and syslog, for example, because some people don't want to use syslog. They might want to use Splunk. Yeah, they have certainly. Yeah, directly. Um, and we didn't get there. That um, Bind 10, uh, I think, been, uh, suffered from second system syndrome. And uh, there's a fork of it that it has become the new uh, DHCP service from ISC. So the, the code is still out there, but it doesn't really do the DNS thing. They, they simply put Bind 10 in GitHub and said, we're never going to finish this. Uh, please do what you want with it. And I, I wish we had got that. I really wish that during the time that my hand was on the tiller of sort of the most popular version of uh, DNS, that I had made it more embeddable, uh, made it more of a sort of name server construction kit rather than a name server per se. Um, but, you know, you, 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 you learn your lessons and you move on. Yeah. And, and I guess that's kind of a good spot for us to transition to talking about, um, you know, more uh, security in DNS. Um, you know, we were kicking this around earlier as well, uh, talking about the, um, you know, 
DHS or DOD, I forget who, for releasing their protective DNS, um, you know, paper the other day and how, um, you know, people have been <laughs> harping on uh, using DNS for more uh, security reasons uh, or for, yeah, more security implementations um, than uh, have in the past. Um, and that, that, that's that been something that you've been talking about for a long time. You know, I've seen your, your talks at conferences. Um, but, you know, I guess first question uh, here is, you know, there's so much to be derived from DNS traffic. And that's something that you obviously offer up um, at Farsight there. But like, what advice do you have for folks to take advantage of that valuable data set? Because um, a lot of our listeners, I think, maybe uh, don't use passive DNS in their daily hunting already. Um, and, and that's something that we've been trying to uh, speak to and, and folks that we work with. But, um, you know, what's uh, what do you have for folks that, um, you know, should be taking advantage of this data set? Well, right. Uh, excellent segue. So after working on DNS from the late 80s until the, the mid 2000s, I was done. Um, yeah, that I had nothing left to learn or prove. Or so I thought. And so I thought, you know, instead of working on DNS, I've got a company, ISC, was full of people that really, they had the passion to, uh, to do that, which I had had uh, two decades earlier, but no longer. Um, so I'm going to leave that to them. And um, for my personal passion project, I am going to start figuring out ways to use DNS to secure other things rather than just trying to figure out how to secure DNS, which you know, a lot of people are working on. Yeah. And so very first thing that we came up with was a way to collect the traffic that was passing through a server. And of course, there's always been server logging, um, but the trouble with server logging is it's writing files in the file system. And if you overrun the speed at which the file system can take your data, then that slows your whole process down to that speed. So you end up missing queries and you know timing out. It's, it's pretty ugly. So we had to find a way to do this on the wire. And uh, Florian Weimar from Uni Stuttgart had to come up with this thing he called passive DNS logging. And um, he said, you know, you could do all of this with BPF, which is the same thing TCP dump would use. Mm -hmm. And you can reconstruct these transactions in that way. And I thought that's perfect because what you would want to be able to do is to monitor the name server that's used by your customers, your students, your family, whatever. Look at that and find out what's being asked because some questions are indicative of a bad condition. For example, if people start asking all the questions that are associated with a uh, botnet command and control. Uh, with, if it's a, a DGA name, domain generation, it may be based on today's date or even the current time of day. And so if you know what questions would be asked by somebody infected by that thing, then if you see those questions getting asked, you know, I think we need to get a smoke jumper to you know drop in on who, that student, that employee, that family member, so that we can look at their computer and find out why it asked that question. Now that's um, you know that's fine if it's a company and it's your employees. It's probably fine if it's a uh, university and they're your students. But because we live in the age of surveillance capitalism, it is generally not fine to do if you're an ISP mm. or a nation state 
or you know somebody who's got access to the data path and they can see what's happening, even though they're not either the first party, the second party, or a designated third party. So there's a big privacy problem with with that. And you know we've got some solutions. We're we're proud of the fact we we did not have to change a single thing at first sight security when. Um, GDPR came into existence in Europe. You know, we've done some other things in Europe, but not because of GDPR. Uh, we were already compliant. We were already protecting the interests of any European data subject or indeed any data subject globally. But that was the first thing we did is to collect the traffic so that we could see if there was a signal, if there was a, you know, something that would tell us something important. Uh, you could also maybe look for DDoS and, you know, backscatter. But but the big problem that people run into is that nobody, not even Google with 8.8.8.8, sees enough of the totality of the traffic to really characterize what's in the DNS today. And so uh, when you run one of these collectors, that's great in terms of just figuring out what to watch for. I recommend everybody do that. There's technology out there called DNS TAP, T-A-P. Um, yeah, there's a dnstap.info. Uh, go look at that. Your name server has it, right? We developed it for Bind in 2016, we Farsight, but it's now in all the open source name servers. And with a little bit of market pressure, we can force Akamai to put it into the Nominum software um, and so forth. And so dnstap is a way to get this data uh, from the server instead of having to look for it on the wire. And that's huge because a lot of what's on the wire now is encrypted. So if you want visibility, you need to get a name server that speaks DNS tap. But once you have that, there's a bunch of other middleware that's associated with it where you can store in files. You can send the data to a passive DNS collector like what Farsight does. Um, you can you know run things in real time that will look at that data. And I, I really strongly recommend everybody take a look at that. But what you'll see is that it doesn't help you with investigations because you're not seeing, nobody is seeing enough data come through their name server to be able to figure out, okay, my CFO is an idiot. They clicked on a business email <laughs> compromise. They got infected or they made the um, whatever wire transfer that somebody was asking them to do or whatever. The domain's gone. I really would like to be able to complain to the police, but I have no idea who did it. There's no, there are no clues to this crime. You know, what can I do? And so that after action forensics is something that requires a global view of the content of DNS, not just what your system saw, but also what everyone else's systems saw, because then you can say, all right, the domain that that was in the URL, that was in the spam that the CFO clicked on, that's gone. That's been taken down. Somebody complained about it and, and it got taken down. Um, but what did it say when it was up? What, you know, what answer did we get? Um, and okay, I now see it gave us a certain IP address. What else was giving the same IP address? What other names led to the same place at that time? Yep. So using time fencing, using sort of pivoting and so forth, you can ultimately discover whether this was a shared or dedicated asset. Maybe it's not the IP address. Maybe it's the mail server name, the MX. Maybe it's the IP address of some of the stuff or the name server name. You might want to know, okay, I see what name server was responsible for the zone, the DNS zone that contained the data that the CFO clicked on. That's all good. What other zones 
used that name server at that time or are using it now. And, and so unless you can see the whole DNS, you can't ask that question, any of those questions. And if you can't ask those questions, you probably can't get recourse against someone who has attacked you. But that's, again, that's the next thing. After looking at the data to see what it tells you about your, your, your infections, you can look at the global data to find out what that tells you about your attackers. And of course, Domain Tools is in a big, uh, a big participant in that same arena. So I know I'm preaching to the choir, but I just want to say that's where this, this trail of breadcrumbs led me. I wanted to use DNS to secure other things. And it turns out there's a lot of meat on that bone. Yeah, certainly. And I, I know that uh, passive DNS is huge in the investigations that I do. I think um, mention it in almost everything that I publish. <laughs> but I, I am curious on DNS tap and excuse my ignorance on this. Uh, does that work around the um, the DNS over HTTPS problem of, you know, losing a lot of that visibility? Um, will that still allow for uh, passive DNS collection on participating servers? Yes, in a word, yes. Um, but your word "participating" could probably be parsed further. You know, we we have a large uh, distributed network of uh, participating servers. You know, we're getting I don't know three hundred and twenty thousand cash miss transactions a second, even as we record this podcast, um, and that's coming from all over the world. Uh, but every one of the people who is operating the collectors and sending that data um, is expecting us to protect the privacy of their local users. Mm -hmm. And so we do a lot of filtering and a lot of deduplication and sort of compression and so forth that's meant to make it really hard to de-anonymize. And we've been pretty successful, although it's an ongoing fight. But when somebody has come to us and said, yeah, I'm an ISP. And uh, so I've got this whole collection of customers that are running name servers that have to use me, their ISP, to get out to the Internet. And so I'm, uh, I can just run your collector on our network and we will see all the cash misses from all these customers. Won't that be great? And my answer is no, that would not be great because those server operators and their local users have an expectation of privacy, which I consider a reasonable expectation uh, when they're using the DNS. So if you can't get them to go along, then please do not put a sensor at the choke point. But I, I know that a lot of other passive DNS collectors do run that way. And those are going to become uh, blind as we move. Uh, it won't be DOH because this is server-to-server -server traffic. It'll be DOT, mm. which is also encrypted. Um, but uh, those sensors will become blind, and I think that's a good thing. Yeah. Uh, but our sensors will not. We we developed middleware, the protocol, we open sourced it all, and so a participating server, in other words, somebody who they they have permission from their users or their management or whatever to operate their name servers as collectors. Those people are just going to move to a more modern version of whatever server they have, um, and if it's bind, let's say, then that's fine. Blue Cat and Infoblox both have appliances that contain Bind. So DNS Tap just kind of went into those at some point. So um, they're going to be able to just configure their name server to send the data 
while the name server has it in hand before it's been encrypted to go out on the wire. And um, because of that, and because of the uptake of this, we have seen only continuous growth. Hmm. Right? DOH is certainly, it's uh, it's out there, it's controversial, and it's, it's growing, but it's growing among a set of people who already didn't trust their name server operators. They already knew their ISP you know, was data mining their transactions and selling their data to you know, the surveillance capitalists or whatever. So they've been using 8.8 and 1.1 and all these other uh, so-called uh, any cast or so-called public DNS servers. And, you know, those people have, yeah, every one of those operators has their own strategy and their own philosophy about what data can be kept. You know, they got privacy policies and so forth. But um, nothing is changing for us. And as long as our coverage continues to grow and as long as the volume of input continues to grow, I'm going to say we're still relevant. Yeah. Um, and I think the reason for that is that we are so careful about the privacy of all of the end users. Uh, we forbid, for example, you would have seen this because uh, we have a, a commercial relationship between the companies. You would have seen in our paperwork that uh, you are forbidden to attempt de-anonymization. If you do that, we can cancel your your um, your, your contract. Yep. That, so that is a risk that we take seriously. And uh, so we're pretty comfortable with DOH. I'm uncomfortable personally. If you sort of look at DNS over HTTP, Vixie, if you run that string on YouTube, you're going to see that I love the sound of my own voice. And <laughs> I am terrified of all of the things DNS over HTTP will do. But it has no impact on passive DNS, at least not so far. And I don't think it will. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. so I guess um, with that, you know, I'll ask you uh, as we wrap up here, um, you know, what's one question that you wish people would ask on these things, um, but they never do? I think it has to do with regrets. Um Right. There was a time when the Internet was relatively small. And so the number of people who had to reach consensus was correspondingly small. And the impact was uh, not on global commerce. You know, you couldn't change elections by fiddling with DNS the way you can now or fiddling with uh, social networking. Yeah. So there was just there was a lot of passion, a lot of care and a lot of missed opportunities. Uh, I guess if somebody would just ask, what would you have done differently if you'd known it was going to get this big? Um, then I would start to say, yeah, so we shouldn't have done DNSSEC um, because we, we've spent 25 years at it and it's kind of wedged. Mm. It's, it's only gone so far. And we're not sure how to get it deployed more ubiquitously. And as a result of that, the... Um, uh, other parts of the internet community today are starting to say, well, we're never going to get security in us, so we've got to put our security somewhere else. So the Internet Research Task Force, which is related to IETF, it's the IRTF, 
is now considering a way to put DNS content into web objects uh, using those meta headers that you see at the top yeah. of an HTML blob uh, because they've already got TLS. You know, they've already got a certain amount of authentication about that server and about who operates it. And so they're thinking they're just going to have to do it that way because we're so late that we've become a dangerous risk to, you know, other innovations. And, um, you know, trying to change DNS to become secure uh, seemed like the right thing. It seemed like, hey, we'll get this done, get it out there, and, you know, then we'll continue. No, it turned out we had to try, I don't know, six, five or six different major approaches. Well, that didn't work. Let's change everything. It's been two years. Let's uh, let's tell everybody that everything they did before is obsolete and, they, and they're going to need to upgrade. Okay, well, how many times do you think you can do that before somebody begins to lose faith. Um, but it was never going to be easy. And um, if we had scrapped DNS itself and said, what we need is a protocol that is secure by design and we can put it on the same port number so we don't have to change all the firewalls and we can find a way to uh, sort of upgrade in place, uh, we could have had it out in three, four years. And uh, the, the thing we didn't realize was that that would seem fast in retrospect, <laughs> right? Because three or four years, if you're looking forward at it, it's like, wow, I got to sit at this desk working at this for that long. That feels like a long time. But I got to say, if you'd say, if you told me, in 1996, look, it can be three or four years, or it can be 25 with an uncertain victory. Uh, please make an informed choice. Boy, that would have been huge. Yeah. Uh, thanks for sharing that, Paul. Um, this is great stuff. Yeah. Thank you, Paul. A um, lot of insights in here. All right. It's time for Chad and myself to be in the hot seat and try to guess which of Paul's statements was the lie. So, Paul, will you kindly repeat the three statements for the audience? Happy to do so. So the original USB protocol uh, was inspired by the mouse and keyboard that we already had that were at that time pretty much standardized on the IBM PS2. Um, so even though these features are not useful to modern uh, like sound cards or things we're plugging into USB today, uh, it did mean that all of the USB keyboards uh, natively supported N-key rollover so that if you're an Emacs user holding a lot of shift keys and modifiers and so forth at the same time that you're hitting you know, characters to make, make your editor do something, uh, that that would just work. And, uh, you know, it's been, we're hugely thankful, those of us who still use Emacs. Motorcycles. Uh, if you look at the tires, if you stand behind a motorcycle and look at the, the sort of rear view, the, what is the profile of the part of the tire that's touching the ground, you'll see immediately that it is round. Uh, it's, uh, it's an arc from sidewall to sidewall. It's not flat on the bottom the way a car's tires would be. And the reason for this is so that when you are leaning the motorcycle over to make a turn, that you're actually reducing your turning radius as well as uh, maybe reducing your wheelbase uh, in, in kind of an abstract sort of way. And finally, the um, CPU fan that we all now have 
in our laptops, desktops, servers uh, that is sort of moving heat away from the hottest component we have inside uh, our computers uh, was not obvious. In fact, it was so not obvious that it was possible to patent that idea, uh, which someone did uh, and could not be challenged with prior art. Nobody had thought about this. Um, But this guy uh, came up with it, he did it, and he was able to sell that patent for millions of dollars. And that's, uh, to me, an example of uh, how people ought to spend less time in the box when they're thinking about stuff. These are great. All right. So we've got computing, we've got motorcycles, we've got the physical aspect. We, it's got a little bit of everything. Uh, Chad, what do you think? You know, I, uh, should, uh, should I just go ahead and make my guess now? Yeah, let's do it. All right. I, uh, you know, as a 20-year uh, Vim user, I don't have the in-key rollover problem. I don't have the, uh, the wizard hands um, that Emacs users uh, tend to develop. Um, so that is, uh, the, the great bit of modal editing, but I do believe I remember, uh, also having, uh, way too many keyboards, um, in this office, uh, that a lot of them did not, uh, initially on USB support in key rollover. Maybe that was a, uh, not a protocol problem and the, um, crappy keyboard problem, but I'm going to guess the USB one is a lie, um, just on that alone. And uh, for me, I, you know, at first, I, I think bottom line, I think I'm going to go with the same as, as Chad. At first, I thought this CPU fan doesn't seem like it could be patentable for the exact reason that you said, Paul, because like it's, it seems fairly, uh, I don't know, it doesn't seem defensible uh, from a patent point of view, but um but yeah, I'm, I I agree, and you know, I I sort of hope that that one's true for the sake of whoever came up with it, because that's kind of fun. But uh, yeah, I'll I'll go with the USB one also. But Paul Vixie, how did we do? You are one hundred percent correct. Uh, N key rollover was a keyboard specific feature that was not uh, uh, included when USB was kind of derived from that. And so if you have N key rollover, that means you've actually got a CPU with an operating system inside your keyboard that is uh, handling that for you and making sure that the USB protocol works correctly. Um, I myself use an IBM Model M high-click keyboard that, of course, used to be a USB keyboard. So all of that logic is in the cable head. Uh, There's a special cable head from the IBM Model M that turns it into USB and adds N-key rollover uh, by so doing. So you guys uh, absolutely guessed correctly. I guess I should have picked something that was outside the computing field to make sure you guys wouldn't, that wouldn't be too easy. Well, who knows? It. Uh, I, I think I just, I got lucky, but uh, <laughs> Chad's reasoning seems to be sound. 
I'll have to tell my wife that uh, my collection of keyboards finally paid <laughs> off. So uh, <laughs> and, uh, that's a reason enough that I think I need to purchase another one today. <laughs> well, Paul Vixie, it's been a delight to have you on Breaking Badness. But even more than that, I want to thank you on behalf of not just Domain Tools, but the InfoSec community more broadly for all of your contributions. Uh, it's safe to say that uh, even though your passion for making things better is as strong as ever, we in fact are safer than we would be if it weren't for your work. So thank you for that. Well, thank you for all those kind words and uh, thank you for inviting me. Uh, let's do this again next year. Absolutely. Thanks, Paul. It was a joy. That's about all we have for this week. You can find us on Twitter at Domain Tools. All of the articles and IOCs mentioned today will be included in our blog post, which can be found at domaintools.com slash resources slash podcasts. Catch us every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific time when we publish our podcast and blog. That's all we have for this week. We'll see you next week on another episode of Breaking Badness. Until then, remember, don't drink and click.